Well, yeah, what a year. Me Too movement and the injustice exposed of gender injustice. The Black Lives Matter and the injustice of racial prejudice and oppression. A political season where, well, it's been exposed. The hypocrisy on both sides of the aisle has been stunning. And of course, all of this in the midst of this word that I don't think I've used ever in my life until now, this dreadful word that I tended to associate with pre-modern times and even the medieval weird world of pandemics. And you would think that we would be disillusioned by the ingenuity of humanity by now and what it can accomplish and can't. You would think we would be asking, looking and searching, is he the one? Is that the one? You know what I mean. That search, that human search, where and how is that soul gut sense of even entitlement to some degree that the world is supposed to be better? when and where and most especially who is the one that's going to bring that to us. Enter then this amazing passage. This is a passage that I think is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It's so real. You see, who would ask the question, are you the one? It's not those who are still not disillusioned. It's not going to be those who are still working their idols. And you know what idolatry does. It promises you the world. And when the world doesn't get built, it blames you and your lack of devotion to the idol for why the world is so bad. And you just work it harder and you work it harder. The idols of identities the idols of institutions, we just work them harder and harder because we're really not asking yet if we are in that state of mind, are you the one? That curiosity does not get awoken until you've got flesh in the game, until you know that you are gonna suffer for the one if you believe the one is it. And that's why this passage is so real. We enter into this incredible moment in the life of Christ, a dilemma as John is sitting in a very putrid, dark jail. We know about this jail from Josephus, a, a Jewish secular historian, if you could put it that way, of that era. He was about to get his head cut off within days. His flesh was in the game. It's the true sign, as you'll see, of genuine all-in faith that you are asking, 
over and over and over again, are you the one? It comes in many ways and fashions. I know for me, as your pastor this year, I've asked it many times. God, really, am I certain? (laughs) Before I say this, before I do this, I know you've been doing that too, if you're all in. Really? Deep questions. Deep disillusionment. Being certain. Are you the one? I love this passage. Christ had earlier said last week, whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. John is in the midst of his cross. And he asks the question. He sends his disciples, go to this man, quickly go. Report back to me as quickly as you can. Ask him, are you really the one? The answer was satisfactorily answered because within days he was dead. I hope this will shake us to consider, are we really in? Have we been asking that question as a sign that we are? Not as a sign of lack of faith, but a sign of there's a lot at stake here now. I've got to be sure. Let's pray. Come, Lord, speak to us, please. We need you. And we need the openness and the honesty to be real and to allow ourselves, even if for just a few minutes, to consider, is Jesus really the one? We pray in Christ's name, amen. We know this dungeon in Macarias was deep down in a basement, extremely hot. Many testimonies of that day would tell you that during this time of King Herod. And of course, all John had done, he had not even spoken directly about Herod. He was careful to keep it about the kingdom of God, even in his day, and proclaim Christ. And yet in proclaiming Christ, he found himself in a very treacherous place. For he was declaring that Jesus Christ is the one, the only true one, the one whom God would send according to the prophets who would usher in the utopian society that humanity has longed for since it was implanted into their hearts at their creation. It's one of the evidences of being a living soul that we have that implanted hope. And having no access to the ministry of Christ, he didn't have the benefit of knowing those things which would have verified that his own prophecies taken from the Old Testament that he'd proclaimed were in fact coming true. There were reports about Christ that he would not have fit, that would not fit what was at the time the the populace expectation of the coming of the Messiah. You see, the populist expectation had carefully, if not wholly intentionally, by those who were the pastors and the prophets of the church of that first century era of Judaism, 
Oh, they knew they would become popular if they preached health and wealth and happiness. And if they would preach a Christ who was triumphant, not humiliated, who would come in great power. Oh, and of course, those prophets like today, they co-opted politics and they spoke of the Messiah as the one who would overturn Rome and bring back Jerusalem politically to themselves. And Jesus came and didn't fit his paradigm very well. He seemed almost complacent and aloof about Rome, but passionate, passionate about God and reconciling sinners to him. And John took upon himself that tradition of the Old Testament all the way through, especially Isaiah, and proclaiming repentance, not a very popular notion, except for those who were already broken and poor in spirit. And so the question, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for someone else? Are you in this story yet? Do you feel the gravity of that? The one to come, that is by now a very familiar truism formula phrase, if you want to call it that, cliche even, that is the one who is to come, that is, is a phrase that you can see scattered throughout the prophecies of the Messiah by the prophets. It's everywhere. Psalms, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah, your king comes to you. Daniel, coming with the clouds of heaven. All three messianic. John is clearly asking Jesus with a very clear mind, absorbing as he had the prophecies of the Old Testament, carefully crafting his questions to this Jesus, who if he's the true Jesus would certainly know the prophets and would understand what they were asking us to look for. And so we ask them in so many words with that truism, with that formula phrase, are you the Messiah? And notice what Christ does, verses 4 through 6. He answers with Scripture. Scripture, though, that had been verified and validated by the very works of his hands. He cites, in this, in this little phrase, he cites not one, not two, not three, but four prophecies taken from a, Isaiah's messianic writings or, or speaking. Prophecies that spoke of a new birth and a new creation and an annulment of sin and all of its curses upon the world. Quoting Isaiah 29, 18, the blind received their sight. 35.5, the lame are walking. 42.18, lepers are being healed. And the lowly, the poor, are having the gospel, good news, preached to them. Isaiah 26, you dead shall live. Their corpses shall rise. O dwellers in the dust 
Awake and sing for joy, for your dew is in a radiant dew, and the earth will give birth to those who are long dead. Go tell John, that's what you see. That's what is being proclaimed. The answer was yes, I'm the one. And notice to whom it will come. A very important qualifier Christ puts in here in verse 6. Listen to it. Blessed is anyone who does not take offense at me. That is a pat, pat word. Many translations interpret it a stumbling. Blessed are those who will not stumble over me. The term is not simply employed to describe taking offense as a matter of social custom at all. Again, it's a common word spoken in the prophets. Isaiah, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, quotes Isaiah 28, 16 about this word. Jesus is quoting the same prophet Isaiah 28 as well. He says, see, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believed in him will not stumble over it. He quotes chapter 8 of verse 14, 1 Peter 2, 8. Again, a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey That is, they don't hear, they don't listen. Really, they don't hear and listen the word as they were destined to do. You see, Jesus just did not come enabling and satisfying the idols of Jerusalem in the first century. He didn't fit their paradigm because their paradigm had been infused and informed by all of their idols. And they didn't even know it. They were so confident. But so many passages in the text, if you just read it slowly, in so many words, Jesus is saying, have you just not seen? Have you not heard? Didn't you understand? He did not come for this world and its political systems. He did not come for material prosperity and happiness, at least not yet. He came to die for your sins. He came to deal with the real problem. The idols of your destruction had to be put to death. And in such a manner that you yourself could be saved by that process. What a difficulty you could say God had. How am I going to put to death their idolatry without putting them to death? Oh, I've got it. I'll kill my son, who would be humanity for them, even as he's divinity for me. The mediatorial purpose of Christ is exposed. That's what was going on, and they were blind. 
so encaptured by their idols, they were blind and they would stumble. That couldn't be the Messiah. That couldn't be. But what's happening here? What is Jesus saying? He's saying those who will receive this kingdom will not stumble. They will not take offense of my humility. You see, John here is not seen as wavering. John is saying, blessed is he, John. Did you hear it? What did you expect, he says. Did you expect, did you see all that little line there? A reed shaken by the wind? That is, did you expect a double-minded person? You know what a double-minded person is, don't you? It's a person who says one thing and believes another, who reads one thing and reads another. Did you expect a man who is schooled in the prophets to then be a person who is taking me casually? Or who is seeing me as co-opting or as being co-opted into a position where he would enable the idols of this world? Did you really think John would be like that? This one who was told in the prophets would prepare the way of the Messiah? Did you expect that? A reed shaken by the wind, double-minded, without conviction? Record, rhetorical, of course, no. Did you expect someone dressed in soft robes, fine linen? I mean, did you expect this John to come to prepare the way of the humiliated, suffering servant of Jesus Christ, that he would come in all the wealth and pomp and circumstance of the world? What did you expect to go out and see? A prophet? Answer, no, that's not what you really were expecting. You saw just more than any old prophet, he says. And again, here it is again, I just love it. He quotes yet another prophecy. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. See, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He says, that's who John is. He's taking me seriously. Or he would not have even asked the question. Because people who take it seriously are suffering for it. There's flesh in the game. And they will find themselves, I suspect like John, perhaps early in the morning, three o'clock, awakening with, with his head spinning around. Am I a nut? Am I right? Could I be wrong? As he has every intention of submitting himself to the knife that would cut his head off. He tells a riddle. Truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, lest you had any doubt that John was in any way wavering. No, these are the questions of men and women with conviction. I'll tell you, among the born of women, no one has risen greater than the John the Baptist, yet the least of the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Here's that least of the kingdom of God I've told you before. Oh, how we so screwed that word up in our own little political correctness. This word is always, always in Matthew about those who 
follow Christ, really, who in the world's eyes will appear to be least. And he is least as I am least. Here it is again, the least of these, that often misquoted passage. So the answer to the riddle, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violence taken by force. He's a suffering servant. That's who John is. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came, he is now the climax and the greatest of them all. He, the last of the Old Testament prophets, has come. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah, the last and greatest prophet who would ascend into heaven. And then he gives you the warning. The one who has ears, let him hear. Blessed is the one who takes no offense of me, who is not scandalized. As evidence of being scandalized, what shall I compare this generation? This generation, of course, is not merely about those who lived in Christ's day, but it's used to describe what you and me should expect today. We should expect the same reaction to us, the prophetic church, to the degree that we walk in the steps of John the Baptist, and to the degree that we live the life of the least of these, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's many instances, I won't quote them for sake of time, where this generation language is applied to the last days, the days following Christ's ascension to the days of Christ's return, this generation. Ephesians talks about it, how these days are evil, meaning filled and wrought with temptation and trial. Is that what you bargained for, Christian, when you became a Christian? I confess, when I became a Christian, oh, I thought I had a lot of passion. I was going to go out and save the world for Christ, but without knowing it, I had a, idols attached to it. Oh, I'm going to save the world for Christ by leading a great movement among the fraternities in Georgia. I'm going to be one of those who run out of Stanford Stadium, busting the big banner on my way to a national championship of which we actually had my senior year. Oh, they were all attached underneath somewhere until about five months passed and God had me on my knees for all kinds of reasons about to disclaim him one night at around one o'clock. That's when I was probably really converted. You see, there is a conversion, and then there is a conversion. There is the conversion to Christ as co-opted to our idols, and then there's a conversion to Christ that says, I'm all in. You're the one. 
you alone can do it. <laughs> he talks about this generation as like a child sitting in the marketplace calling for their room playmates. And he says about that child, there's nothing you're going to do to satisfy that child. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. His point being, I don't care what I do and what I say, as long as you're wanting me to serve your idolatry, you'll be disappointed. It's really simple. And so he began to warn them. If God doesn't spare even Tyre or Sidon, what makes you think, if you are scandalized by me, if you turn away from me, if you don't hear what the real issue is, that you have been separated from God, I've come to repair the breach. And if that's not what you want him to do, It's going to be really bad for you. That's what he basically says. You won't receive the utopian world that I have come to give you. In closing, whether a Christian not or not, this passage is real. It reminds you that you're going to face disillusionment if you're really in. And when you do, you're going to have a crisis of faith. I'm looking at young men right there. I'm seeing some kids over here. I hope you remember these words. I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to your parents. And I'm talking to me. There will be times in your life, if you're taking it seriously, if this isn't a casual, I mean, how can you have a casual relationship with Jesus Christ? But... If it, if it isn't, if it's not casual but real, you're going to ask this question. Jesus, huh, is it you? And if, and if your biblical knowledge and understanding and, your, and having worked out your theology, in other words, having been grounded and rooted in the faith, you are going to be like a reed shaking in the wind. The same phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4 about those who are not rooted and grounded. You all wonder why we push things like confessional theology where we actually have a chance to ask at every level of our faith, is this really true? It's taught in a confessional way, not a systematic way that is rationalist, not in a blank that is historical, not in a philosophical, not in a sociological, but no, it's meant to be studied, the scripture to say, do I really believe this? And you need to prepare, Christian, young adults. You need to prepare for a life that's not going to necessarily be easy if you're a follower of Christ. I praise God for those nights that I've had where I literally walked myself through the same handouts that you have walked through in this church, literally walked through them in my mind. Do I believe this? Let me go back and check that reference in Scripture before I go out tomorrow and say what I'm about to say. Let me really make sure. Are you the one to help my family? Are you the one to make my job better? Are you the one to give me the lifestyle that I want? Are you the one to make my neighbor better? 
Are you the one who can make me feel better or good about myself? Are you the one? And all of this stuff seems to miss the point. While it is true that he will do all those things in some way or another. Are you the one to bring a new administration in government? Are you the one that's going to give a new philosophy for raising children? Are you the one that's going to give a new personality to my, to my marriage? Are you the one, the new social program? Are you the one, TV personality, whatever it is? Really underneath that question, what is the question? It's not are you the ones, plural. It's you are the one. Wouldn't it be silly, as Os Guinness tells the story of a Russian Christian who was in a courageous survival of 15 years of Soviet gulag and in prison for political dissidents, and what saw him through was his newfound faith in Jesus Christ. Upon coming out of the prison, he found his boy, and you can't imagine the joy he felt when his son, this young man, was wearing a cross. And when this man asked his son about the cross, having spent his flesh on it. The son explained, Dad, calm down. It's just a fashion statement. I wonder if some have stumbled with Jesus Christ or the name Christian assigned to their name. An unwillingness to suffer. An unwillingness to put flesh in the game. A casual relationship. Ask the question today. Ask it tonight. Are you the one? Amen.